You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Um, got another good episode lined up. Hope everyone's going to enjoy. But before I get into it, I want to thank everyone. We recently got past 2,000 downloads on the show, and that in and of itself is something that I'm very proud of, and it really wouldn't have happened without all of my listeners. So I want to thank all of you for tuning in and enjoying the show, and that's ultimately what gives this purpose. And, um, you know, I know that there's a lot of crazy things going on in the world, and I started this podcast really as a distraction, as a way of kind of getting away from a lot of those negative things, a lot of those things that are kind of scary and confusing and whatnot, and finding a, a base, you know, finding a, you know, a nice place where everyone can kind of get together, enjoy a great topic, you know, celebrate some, you know, some really good achievements that we've made in terms of, you know, hobbyists and conservation and all that good stuff. Cause right now in the world, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. And regardless of how you feel about this or that, you know, it's nice to know that this is a place where everyone can kind of get together and have some common ground. And for that, I'm thankful. And I'm very thankful to all of you for tuning in. As I said, we're now on uh, six continents with the exception of Antarctica. So Antarctica, we're coming for you. <laughs> Interestingly enough, you know, just kind of as a joke, you know, I was uh, with all the crazy things that are going on in the world. I, I kind of looked into buying property in Antarctica and apparently you can't buy property there because everyone is welcome there as long as it's not to uh, do uh, anything that would be, uh, I guess, uh, dangerous or, uh, illegal or whatnot. So I won't be going to Antarctica, you know, maybe, maybe at some point in the future. Don't know. So uh, a couple of shout outs I wanted to give, obviously I want to, you know, um, thank my listeners in Asia. You guys, uh, made it possible for the podcast to be on six continents. And, um, I know there's a couple of countries in Asia. There's, there's too many for me to list, but I want to thank my listeners in Asia for showing an interest, and it's nice to have the support. Um, another shout-out I want to give is to uh, Ms. Carly Jones. She sent me a really nice message, and um, Carly, I just want to let you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it's Carly. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, I want to thank you, Carly, for the kind words. It was very, very well received, and it's nice to know that your efforts are being received well by people, and for that, I'm very, very thankful. Uh, a couple other things. Uh, what else was I going to say? I don't know. I didn't really script this intro, but it doesn't matter. Um, obviously, uh, I didn't put out an episode last week. It was Halloween. Uh, Halloween's kind of a big day in my house, especially since it was on a Saturday. And um, it's just a good day to kind of, you know, again, get out and do some fun things. And um, I'm also uh, really, really, really into Halloween. So in any event, um, let's move forward. And, um, you know, tonight uh, I have uh, Mr. Devin Edmonds, and we're going to be going over some some pretty cool stuff. He's got a very, very extensive resume. And um, I really enjoy it when people who are involved in the scientific community and in academia, you know, come on the show. I think it's a great way to shed some light on a lot of different things from a very unique and scientific perspective. And if you're out there, you're a member of the scientific community, you know, you're interested in being on the show, by all means, email me, uh, amphibicast at gmail.com. I'd appreciate having you. And, um, you know, Another thing I wanted to say is um, the uh, people who left some nice reviews on Apple Podcasts, I appreciate that. The reviews do help. Um, they help me get the podcast out to a broader audience. So if you are enjoying the podcast, a nice review on Apple Podcasts, five stars if you like it, um, would definitely be appreciated. And uh, again, I want to thank all of you for making this possible. So enough of me blubbering and going on, uh, waxing idiotic. So let's get into it tonight's interview. So Devin, welcome. Um, really happy to have you on the show. You've got a you know a pretty crazy resume, and um, I know we're kind of short on time. So why don't we kind of get into it right away? I mean, tell tell us your story. What are some of your early experiences growing up, and what led you to work with frogs? Well, I'm trying I'm trying to think of one thing you know that might have got me into it, but I don't really know exactly why we do what we do. Um, but they've all, you know, amphibians, reptiles have always fascinated me. Uh, you know, since I was a child, I remember, you know, going out with my dad bird watching, he's a birder, and he'd go out with, you know, binoculars, always be looking up, and I'd always be, you know, the kids looking down, trying to find a toad or a snake or something like that. And, um, you know, I remember, I remember we had a, an aquarium growing up, and, you know, it's just kind of like a family aquarium, and then we got a newt one time, and that was like the coolest thing ever. We had a newt, it was so much better than the fish. 
And so I don't know what it was about amphibians, um, amphibians and reptiles, but just something that's always interested me about them, um, probably like most of your listeners. And um, I'm trying to think back, you know, how I got into, into keeping amphibians and reptiles. And, you know, I started from the aquarium when I was a teenager. I joined a, a group called the American Dendrobates Group. It was like a newsletter that went around uh, a couple times a year had like a listing of all the members in the back of it and i i wrote out letters to the people in my area in wisconsin um and i was fortunate somebody wrote a letter back to me and i got to go over to their house and see their dark frog collection which was um, really cool at the time and they they actually would like let me take care of their dark frogs when they went on vacation and then she'd actually pay me in tadpoles and frogs in exchange for the um care for animals while she was away so I think, I think that's kind of all where, where it started. Uh, it's part of what led to where I am now. Cool. I mean, I just want to kind of get into some of your academic background because it's, I mean, you've got a lot of experience, especially like in the field work. I mean, just kind of briefly, can you kind of give us, you know, kind of where your academic background started and like what some of the different, you know, some of the different job titles that you had kind of going from then up until now? Sure. Well, you know, academia is kind of a new thing to me. Um, you know, I'm a graduate student now. I, I went back to graduate school after um, to work on actually ornate box turtles about three years ago. So I went back to the university for that. And um, that was after about a 10-year break um, after graduating from college. And between the two times, actually, um, I was living most of the time in Madagascar working with a a conservation organization called Mitsinju. It's like a community-run group helping them um, get a amphibian breeding center started. And then um, before that, when I was uh, in college, I, I was in college in Madison at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and um, had some internships there at uh, the local zoo. And um, and now, I'm in, now I decided after the box turtle work here at the University of Illinois, I decided to continue on, and now I'm um, going forward with a Ph.D. on... Um, focused on amphibians in Madagascar again, so kind of come full circle from, you know, kind of what started it all. Very cool, very cool. Now, from the work that you've done with Mantellas, I mean, I don't expect you to get into everything, but what what makes Mantellas unique among frogs, and, and how how do they compare to, like, the the, the, uh, the dendrobateids of the New World? I mean, like, what are some similarities, some differences? I mean, what, what makes a Mantella a Mantella? You know, they're, yeah, they're so similar. I mean, that's the thing about mantellas and dark frogs. They get mixed up and confused a lot. Um, they're like a perfect example of convergent evolution where you have the, the same kind of features evolving independently in different species from different parts of the world. So they're both, I mean, they're both like small, diurnal frogs. They've got the bright, bright warning coloration. They sequester their poisonous alkaloids and um, they're in their skin from the food they eat. So they're doing kind of the same thing. And, um, they also, you know, they both lay their eggs on land. Now, one, one kind of, one species of mantella actually feeds eggs to its tadpoles, kind of like some ufaga do, some other kinds of dark frogs do. So, they have a lot in, in common. Um, but they differ in a few ways. You know, mantellas are only found in Madagascar. Dark frogs are, you know, in Central and South America. It's kind of opposite parts of the world. And, you know, they evolve separately. So, mantellas are actually more closely related to ronids, like, bullfrogs and leopard frogs than they are to dark frogs and dark frogs um, are more closely related to you say like true toads like an American toad than they are to mantellas so they have the same feature but they kind of came from um, different places you know and the other big difference I guess is that dark frog um, you know the whole family dendrobotidae and they there's more than 300 species whereas mantellas is just a, a genus of like 16 species so it's probably a big difference too Interesting. I mean, now do they face some of the some of the similar threats that a lot of the dart frogs do? And I mean, Madagascar is a pretty unique place, and there's a lots of different um, lots of different biomes going on there. I mean, there's there's kind of desert areas, there's some rainforest areas, there's a whole variety. But do they face some of the same threats in Madagascar, or 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 is it different? Yeah. Well. You know, I mean, the largest threat for amphibians worldwide is habitat loss. So you have a lot of um, poison dart frogs and a lot of mantella frogs that are 
you know, highly threatened from habitat loss. And I guess maybe the other threat they have in common to um, is, uh, you know, collection for the pet trade, definitely a you know, secondary threat compared to the threat of habitat loss. But I guess they both have that too, so they're both kind of, they appeal to the pet trade and they also are threatened by habitat loss. Um, I don't know, you know, if you look at Mantellas, you know, more than half of the 16 species are at high risk of extinction. You know, two are, are critically endangered. They're right on the edge. Um, and I don't know how that compares to the proportion of dark frogs that are that are threatened. Um, you know, Madagascar is one of the economically poorest countries. Most people are, you know, subsistence farmers and clearing land and, and using forests directly. Um, you know, and, and uh, certainly, you know, slash and burn agriculture is kind of the way People tend to grow food in Madagascar, um, especially on the side, growing hill rice. And that's, that's where you um, cut down the forest and let it dry out and then um, burn it to kind of release the nutrients from the forest back into the land. And it works really great um, if you can move to a new piece of forest and do it again. And if there are not very many people and there's a lot of forest, but in Madagascar, I guess, you know, it's an island and there are a lot of people and there's very little forest left. So... Um, that's certainly a, a large threat facing Antella frogs. Although also, you know, there's a big, um, a lot of issues with habitat loss related to agriculture in Central and South America as well. Now, obviously, you know, as you said, that you know, agriculture is a pretty big threat. But like, what what constitutes a perfect habitat for a Mantella? I mean, is it do the, does the whole genus kind of occupy the same? environment in the wild or does it vary by species i mean like if you were going to go look for mantellas in madagascar like what type of environment would you find them in yeah you know i had this i had this idea i remember before i went to madagascar i had this idea that mantellas were you know in the jungles and the tropical rainforest and this lush rich like green environment and um there are mantellas that you find in kind of lowland rainforest in Madagascar, but it's not most of them. There, you know, there's kind of, there's kind of four, four kind of kinds of mantellas. You could say there's there's kind of these swamp forest mantellas that are like golden mantellas and um, mantella crocea, the yellow mantella, Madagascariensis, okra. These are kind of they're found like mid altitude forest. Um, they're on these forested hillsides next to these. Um, seasonally flooded ponds. So there's kind of little depressions in a forest that during a few months of the year in December and January when the rains arrive, these little depressions in the forest fill with water and the mantellas come down from the side of the forested hill, breed in these ponds, and then move back up after the ponds, um, after the rainy season is over. And then the second kind of mantellas, there's, there's kind of mantellas that are associated with streams, so moving water, um, usually in forest or whatever forest lets go along the stream. So like that'd be like painted mantellas, like mantella baroni or mantella nigricans. Uh, you could put mantella kawani in that group. And they're all found along the side of fast moving water. Well, moving water, oftentimes it's a big river, um, sometimes like bouldery outcrops, but still getting forest along streams. The third kind of, you know, group that you kind of think about mantellas, there's, Actually, a, a number of species that are found in pretty arid regions, pretty dry parts. You know, Madagascar is a very diverse country, and so you have species like Mantella bacilio and Expectata, the blue leg Mantella. You could even put maybe the green Mantella, Mantella paredes, in this group. And they're from warmer areas, um, lower elevations, and in some situations, especially for Mantella bacilio and Expectata, I mean, it's, it's pretty hot and dry where they live. And again, they're waiting for these rains to come in the rainy season when they become active or breed. And then there's like outliers, like, I mean, the main outliers, the climbing mantella, mantella labrigata, which you find in kind of bamboo forest. It's more arboreal. Um, and it, you know, it breeds, it has kind of an interesting um, breeding uh, strategy that's a little different than other species, too, where it, you know, lays kind of uh, smaller clutches, you know, sometimes even just one or two eggs above water and then it feeds their tadpoles and feeds its tadpoles eggs so um they're pretty i guess all in all they're pretty diverse they, they occur in a wide range of habitats and um it's not just in kind of this typical tropical rainforest that you might picture for them that's interesting especially about the, the you know the the uh, obligate egg eaters 
I, I've always, I love convergent evolution. I've always been fascinated by it. I mean, in, in terms of, I guess, like significant, you know, biological events or whatever. I mean, finding a species that has the same adaptations on a completely different part of the planet. It, to me, it was, always, it was always fascinating. I don't know. I'm just kind of like nerding out about it. But um, now one difference, though, I guess you could say between the, the dendrobatids of the New World and Mantellos is that the, the breeding is a lot it's it's very very seasonal with mantellas. Is that is that correct? Yes, from yeah, for most species. Yeah, there's some some species that are like uh, you know climbing mantellas, Labagata will um, breed year round, and some other species that are at lower elevations. Um, I think Ebenawi might breed year round, but yeah, they're pretty pretty seasonal for sure. Most species are yes. Interesting. I mean, if you were to like, you know, obviously mantellas don't have the same presence in captivity as dart frogs and i don't you know i don't really know all the reasons behind that i'm sure there's many but i mean if you 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 kept them captive in madagascar for study i mean what what kind of conditions did you maintain them in to get them to you know to to thrive and to breed because i was i was kind of reading over the study it looks like it was in 2012 you, you guys started in madagascar with a captive breeding program i mean how did you how did you get them going like how did you set them up and and get them to thrive and reproduce well you know they're they're pretty easy frogs to keep alive that you know they're they're fairly hardy um that's a reputation for maybe being a little tricky or sensitive to warm temperatures and things like that but they're really not you know kind of think about all frogs that people try to keep they're really not that hard to keep but they can be kind of tricky to breed and so in, in you know in madagascar we had a big advantage with we were you know working you know, we had the captive frogs about 10 miles away from the wild populations, and the breeding center didn't um, doesn't have any heating or cooling. So it was basically, we basically let the, the temperature inside the building adjust naturally outside of the building. So it was a lot easier than when people try to breed mantellas um, outside of their native range, where you just don't have that advantage. You have to kind of simulate these seasonal conditions to get them going. Um, you know, you can keep them... You can keep, um, on uh, you know, pretty simple setups, uh, sphagnum moss, you know, over a false bottom, some leaf litter, a plant, a water dish is fine. Or in some kind of elaborate naturalistic terrarium in Madagascar, you know, the whole idea of this breeding center was to build capacity and get the infrastructure in place and people trained so that if there was a threat like an infectious disease, like the amphibian chytrid fungus that arrived. We'd be able to evacuate them out of the forest and and make sure that they don't actually go extinct. And so to do that, you know, we had to be really careful about what materials entered the breeding center. We couldn't use like you know soils or things basically that we couldn't just allow fully to dry. Um, and so we set them up basically on um, large gravel, maybe a little bigger than pea gravel, with leaf litter litter over the top. That's all they're still it's still maintaining them now. And then a couple potted plants. Um, very simple. And that also makes finding eggs easier. Eggs, eggs can be pretty hard to find for mantellas. So, you know, if you have a simple setup, it makes um, breeding them much easier. Well, where do they typically deposit their eggs? Well, they lay, lay eggs on land. The exception would be like the climbing mantel. But they're, in terrarium people have a lot of trouble because, you know, they'll, they'll have these really, like, complex naturalistic terrariums with, you know, with, like, water features and backgrounds and stuff. And mantellas are, like, hide the lake. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was keeping mantellas, um, you know, years ago, they'd, they'd lay eggs, like, behind the background, or they'd hide them, like, they'd go burrow into the moss and make little, like, secret depressions that you wouldn't see unless unless you knew to look there. So they're not going to lay in a coconut hut like a dark frog will. Um, so kind of more the simpler the um, tank setup is, the easier it is to find eggs. Um, in the wild, what they're kind of, I guess, we don't know for a lot of species, but for, for the species that do know, you know, they're laying eggs, and what, what seems like be the case, they're laying eggs come on the edge of these depressions or on the edge of streams kind of before the rains arrive and the water level rises. And then, you know, the water level rises, it kind of flushes the tadpoles into these water bodies, and that's where the tadpoles develop. So that's kind of what they're doing in captivity. You know, they're putting a little, they're like, oh, the temperature's warming up and you're missing more, so I'm going to stick my egg down here in this, depression under in the back corner of the terrarium where you never see these eggs just waiting for the water to kind of fill up and flush the tadpoles away. 
Interesting. Very interesting. It's it's funny because that it, it, it you know like you said they're not going to lay eggs underneath the cocoa hut. It's it's I've heard people say I've had conversations with people about like more simplistic setups especially for breeding purposes and it's interesting because you kind of assume that well they need this elaborate naturalistic set up to thrive and it, it really isn't always the case and i think that that's one of those facts that's kind of lost on people like especially with beginners you know I, i've had some conversations with beginners not not necessarily about frogs but just about doing vivarian builds in general and they want to build this really elaborate vivarium and i can kind of tell they haven't quite got the handle of how it works yet and I'll just tell them, like, look, you don't have to do this. You can keep the animal in a simpler way as long as, you know, you're satisfying all of its needs, et cetera, and you're, you're keeping it consistent with the way it could be kept. But, you know, you don't necessarily need a foam background and a water feature and all that other stuff. You know, that's really that's really more for you. That's not necessarily for the frog. But, you know, to hear what you just said about, the, you know, the, the egg deposition kind of being a little bit more, like, secretive and, you know, how they kind of rely on rains to wash them into a body of water. It's, it's, it definitely explains, you know, I guess why they're considered to be a little bit more tricky to breed in captivity. Now, before you, you, you mentioned chytrid, that was one of the other questions I wanted to ask you was, you know, obviously this, this, you know, this study that you did was really, really big on biosecurity. So, I mean, what were some of the biosecurity methods that you used and like, what, what were you looking to avoid? I mean, like, are we talking about chytrid? Are we talking about ranavirus? What are we, what are we talking about? Well, at, you know, at the time, things are a little different now, but, um, you know, 10 years ago, chytrid hadn't been detected in Madagascar and there was also a lot less that people knew about the disease. You know, it's kind of this awesome idea that they, especially like how what happens and the most extreme situations, like what happened in Panama and some places in Australia and stuff where chytrid arrives and just decimates frog populations. Like that was that fear that was going to, what was going to happen in Madagascar. So um, that was kind of the justification for developing Mitsinju's um, breeding facilities. And so, you know, our primary concern was, was amphibian chytrid fungus. That's what, that's what, where we started at and what we're going for. You know, the nice thing about, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to kill, you know, it's, um, you know, to let things completely dry out, you know, where you find bleach is great, you know, it's, um, it's not that hard to kill chytrid to make uh, a breeding center where it's, you know, easy to keep it out and to keep it from spreading around if, if it got in. Well, what eventually happened was, you know, chytrid was detected in Madagascar in, I think, um, Actually, first, I think, in frogs that were exported from Madagascar for the pet trade. And then people started looking a little more, and they found amphibian chytrid in um, basically throughout Madagascar in very small amounts. And so it's, but, but it doesn't seem, nobody's detected any um, big mass declines or any disease. I don't even think any disease related mortality yet. So it's, it's not really clear what's going on. What's kind of what happened with the breeding center, though, is that we built all this. Past, you got the breeding center set up, um, and um, you know, Mitsinju uh, members and technicians uh, were trained in how to keep and breed amphibians in captivity, and we were culturing localized foods. And what actually happened is uh, one of the largest nickel mines in the world opened up um, and bulldozed a bunch of Mantella Arantiaca, the Mantella habitat, and basically came to us and was like, Will you take like our salvaged frogs? <laughs> so we, you know, we created the breeding center with the threat of chytrid in mind and what really happened was you know the threat of habitat loss kind of took a priority and that's what Mitsinji is doing now is breeding golden mantellas for reintroduction and um they've actually been um working with the mine to release golden mantella tadpoles that kind of created sites to um in a way to kind of mitigate what was lost from the mine that's that's a really that's a good save i mean wow that's that's crazy it's it's amazing like you know you try to um, you know, you try to set up a breeding population to them uh, for them to save them from one threat, and you end up inevitably saving them from another. And it's not the time; that's not the first time I've heard that either. Um, I did kind of come across another study with a different species where it was being kept for um, it was threatened; it was being kept in captivity for another purpose, and then uh, ultimately those people ended up cooperating with. Uh, I don't want to say cooperating like someone held a gun to their head, but like, you know, they ended up uh, engaging with scientists so that they could work, you know, more towards a, uh, a you know, a conservation end rather than um, more of like an exploiting type of situation. But 
I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, in addition to like, you know, the mantellas, I mean, what, what other species of amphibians did you run into in Madagascar? Oh man. Well, I, I lived in a Dasi Bay, which is in East central Madagascar. And it's, you know, within uh, like 20 miles of the village, there were nearly a hundred species of frogs. So, I mean, it was really like this hyper diverse amphibian species rich location. Um, the, I mean, it's the country of Madagascar has over 500, um, well, 360 some described species, but what people think about over 500 species of amphibians um, that are endemic to it. And for comparison, you know, Madagascar is about the size of Texas, and the whole continent of North America only has about 100 some species of frogs and toads. So, you know, this country that's about the size of Texas has five times that. So, I mean, it's a really incredible place. Um, at the breeding center, though, you know, one of the goals was to keep a variety of species, many different kinds. One, to try and figure out their husbandry, because most amphibian species in Madagascar have never been kept in captivity before, let alone bred. And then the other idea was to get, you know, um, you know, figure out, um, kind of get Mitsuji technicians trained in how to keep all these different kinds of frogs, because you might be great at breeding mantellas, but if it turns out these, like, large tree frogs, these bufus species, are really what are most at risk when um, a threat arrives or really what needs the most help at the moment, then um, you need to know how to keep um, other species too. So we had, we used species, kind of common species for training at the start, like you know, like a lot of little kind of brown frogs. I don't know how else to <laughs> describe them, but they all had like different, some of them were, um, one of them that's our, that that is breeding now is actually produced by direct development, so they eggs on land and then like little frogs hatch out, which is pretty cool. Um, and, um, we had some heterichthyus reed frogs. Your listeners might be familiar with um, those. Um, some some really beautiful bluefish, and, uh, which is kind of genus of tree frog. Um, but yeah, I think right now I don't know the situation at the moment. When I was when I last visited a couple of years ago, I think it was um, 14 species they were maintaining, and all but two had bred and or were breeding. Huh, that's interesting. You know, I like what you said about the little brown frogs because it's it's those little brown frogs are the ones that usually need the most help, and they're usually the ones that kind of get like pushed, you know, pushed aside for the more colorful species. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you know, do you have like a once in a lifetime sighting or experience like out in the field that you've kind of carried with you? I mean, you know, I've, I've had you know a couple other guests, and they've they've kind of told me about like when they were out in the field they had a run in with this one species or they had this one situation that it kind of just was like, you're never going to see this again. I mean, Madagascar is pretty wild. Have you ever had an experience like that? Uh, well, you know, what kind of came to mind was not, was actually not a Madagascar. Um, but I, so I think probably the most memorable experience was probably seeing, um, wild Goliath frogs, you know, the largest frog in the world. And, um, I had the opportunity to see them there um, found in Cameroon, and my sister was in the Peace Corps in Cameroon, actually, so I went to go visit her, and um, she had a, a friend at the National Zoo in Yaoundé, and we went there just to go to the zoo, and they had this, like, kind of, this cement kind of, looked like, almost like a house kind of thing, and it said Goliath frog in the front. I was looking at it, there's no Goliath frog in it, and so we talked to her, um, uh, the guy at the zoo who she knew, and said they were going to go um, collect a new one. They need to collect a new one. So I got to take along to go look for Goliath's frog. And we actually, we, you know, I pictured them in kind of really nice habitat, this beautiful, you know, pristine forest. And we got to the, the river, where it was a pretty large river, where um, the, the zoo guy took us. And it was actually kind of trash. There's like <laughs> tires in the water, <laughs> a bunch of plastic bags on the side. And you know, so it was like there's you know bananas growing next to it. It wasn't pristine forest, that's for sure. And um, there was one that jumped into the water that we missed. We couldn't get it. So after the that day on the stream, that night went back to the town um, where we were staying. And um, one of the largest threats to Goliath frogs actually is that they're eaten. Um, they're um, illegally hunted for food. And so we actually connected with someone who had collected Goliath frogs for 
um, to sell to a, to legally sell to a restaurant. And when you look out behind his house, there's like in there's like blue 55 gallon plastic drum where like these massive, huge frogs, two of them. And then he had one in a backpack that he pulled out to the giant Goliath frog. And those ended up going back to the zoo in Yaoundé actually. Um, but to see Goliath frog in person was just, I mean, you know, you know, dreamed of that since I was a kid. That's, that's probably a highlight. Yeah, that okay. You you win. <laughs> that's I think that's the, I think that's probably the coolest encounter I've ever heard. But yeah, you you win. You take you take the crown. Um, that's that's wild because I it was another species that I always been intrigued about. But the, I mean, at least from my enemy, maybe I'm wrong. But there wasn't a tremendous amount of information available. I mean, do you have any? I mean, outside of that experience, I mean, do you have any other experience with them in terms of like what you know, like what their what their um, natural history is like? I don't, you know, I wish I knew more about them. I, you know, I know, um, what I, when something comes to mind is, I, you know, they're, they aren't kept successfully in captivity as far as I know. And I remember some, I think it was in a book, uh, like a, a zookeeper wrote a book. I oh, mean, I wish I remember the name of the book, but I think it was the Bronx Zoo tried to maintain them and, I remember reading in there that one of the problems was the tadpoles of Goliath frogs have a very like specific diet, like particular type of algae or plant that they feed on. And so that was one of the major challenges um, for any zoo that's ever tried to maintain them, aside from their like giant size and space requirements. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. There was a, I don't remember it, it built nests or something. They have some, they have, I'll, have to, I'll have to do some more reading when I get back home tonight. So. You know, there's, it's always a good night if you're like reading about Goliath Bronx. So yeah, yeah. Around. It's it's funny because I I had seen them on uh, price lists here. You know, in the I mean, well, you and I are both in the U.S., but just for anybody outside the U.S. And I I always wondered, I'm like, how, what, where, and why is this even like possible? You know, I've never even heard of one of these things in captivity yet. It's on someone's price list, which is, I mean, you know, I I don't want to get into the whole. Uh, you know, ethic ethics debate. I mean, you know, me personally, I, I kind of think that that was in the wrong to have them on a price list, but there were zero available, which is, I guess, a good thing. But um, yeah, that's one of those species that I'd, I'd love to do an episode about because it's just, it's it has this mystique about it. I mean, it's this gigantic frog. It's the largest frog that exists at this time. Yet there's really not a tremendous amount of information about, uh, about them out there. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. No, they're, yeah, they're really incredible amphibians. Oh, yeah. I mean, now, you, you've written a couple of books, actually, um, which cover quite a few. You've, you've, you've written how many? Was Is it two books? Uh, yeah, I wrote, um, I wrote actually uh, three books, a book about tree frogs. They're like, uh, geared toward people who keep pets. So a book about keeping tree frogs and a book more generally about frogs and toads and then uh, one about newts and salamanders. Cool. I mean... You know, what are some tips that you might want to give to someone who's like, say, starting out in the hobby, like someone who's never kept, like, never kept amphibians before? I mean, you know, when you're research writing the books, like, what are some, like, what are some gateway species you think that might get someone involved in the hobby that they could kind of handle with, like, you know, I don't mean, I don't mean handlers, and I mean put their hands on. Um, I'm not a big fan. I don't believe in handling, but um, <laughs> um, what's it with? Let's say what's within their comfort zone to work with. I mean, what what would be a good beginner species? Would you say? Well, I mean, you can't go wrong. I mean, um, with fire-belly toads or white tree frogs, I know they're a commonplace and they're at, like, every other store, but they, they're they popular for a reason. I mean, they're, um, especially fire-belly toads. I actually, you know, I'm trying to think, if this was more than 10 years ago, but once some of the, you know, when I still had a large amount of, you know, kind of private amphibians at home, is I, I had a tank of fire-belly toads just because I liked them. I mean, they're just, they're diurnal and colorful and, they do cool things, and if you have a group of them, they're great. Um, and white tree frogs too. I mean, they're just they're just hardy, you know. And I guess you know if um, people are kind of you know wondering, you know, what to do if you want to, you know, kind of what, what what things do you want to get right? I mean, it's really all just about the environment. So the more the more you know about kind of the how to maintain the right environment, you know, temperature and water quality and um, airflow and things like that, the more the better you get at that for any species, the better you get at keeping um, um, other kinds of frogs. And certainly you can get the hang of that with, with some of these common ones, which are, which are really you know, pretty great frogs to keep. 
Now, do you have a favorite species? I mean, I don't know if you still keep... Do you still keep anything, like, in, in a private collection, or...? We have... Yeah, well, well my wife and I, we, we, um, we have a few tanks of dark frog, and we have a tank of gold mantellus, too. So we have, um... Yeah, we have just, uh, um, Tinctorious and some tricolor, a couple kinds of tricolor, which are, um, kind of dark frog. They're really fun. Um, great tall and bold. You know, they're transporting, carrying tadpoles around in the tank, which is fun to watch. And, and then a tank of, um, gold mantellas um you know why not <laughs> yeah no I, I i definitely i don't blame you i mean they're they're a beautiful species now i mean with with what about like the social dynamic with mantellas because like with with, with tanks um there's definitely a, a social dynamic they're they definitely get territorial and and they will you know they'll like have at each other is that an issue with mantellas like keeping them communally or is there anything that you'd have to look out for um, they, they do have kind of interesting interactions sometimes, um, but they actually, they do best in large groups. So I think one of the reasons sometimes they aren't bred as often as like dark frogs, if you get, you know, a pair of mantellas or a trio of mantellas, um, you're probably not going to get eggs or if you do get eggs, they probably won't be fertilized. You know, if, if you want to kind of maintain mantellas, I think a large group of like eight to 10 is really the way to go. And the males will, um, call and some you know, even engage in a little combat, um, but it's not—it's not like with some dark frogs where they'll stretch each other to death or you know battle nonstop um, like female tinctorious sometimes do. Um, so no, they do great. They do great. I think that's the best way to keep them. And of course, going with captive bred uh, for sure too. You know, there's a—that's really important as well. Yeah, I only had—I had one experience with mantellas, and this was going back. Oh, I want to say maybe 1999. This is how long ago this was. I, I ordered them online. The, the Really the one and only time I made an order online that long ago. And I got two species. I, I'm i not too great with the, with the scientific names of the mantella, so I'm going to give the common names. But uh, it was a green mantella, and it was a, I think it was a painted was the other one. And um, I, I didn't keep them successfully. They were obviously imports, you know, wild caught, and they didn't they didn't do too well. I think they only lasted maybe like a month, and they just failed to thrive, which you know I, I screwed up. But you know, it was again, it was just kind of one of those species that I never really saw to the extent that I started to see dart frogs, you know, within the past, you know, within the past twenty years. But um, you know, the other thing at, at that time, also the, the shipping wasn't as great. You know, I, they kind of got like brown boxed to me, so. I, I don't know. You know, it was just 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 an, just not too great of an experience. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a common experience, and the reason people get turned off is you know, um, wild caught mantellas are you know are still you know widely available, unfortunately. And there's you know they you know you kind of you have to think about these frogs. They go from you know out of the forest and they're held at a you know a collector's house, and then they're held at like a a middleman's house in Madagascar, and then they're transported all the way to the capital may help for a few weeks at the exporters you know or even longer and then they're flown all the way and then they have the importer employee i mean it's like the the what you end up with when you when you get a you know imported you know mantella frog is not always the healthiest animal and they can be kind of um sensitive and have gone through you know gone through a lot so i think your experience is actually pretty common unfortunately yeah i i, I always kind of had that feeling you know i i one of the things that I always kind of struggle with, and, um, you know, this is just kind of a personal thing, you know, this does not reflect everyone, you know, in the business or whatever, but um, I, I noticed that there's a lot of misrepresentation of captive bred animals being sold as, uh, well, non-captive bred animals being sold as captive bred. And especially at, at expos, I see people getting kind of like hosed and... It, it, it's it you know for lack of a better word it sucks because i mean at least in my opinion it's irresponsible to you know harvest them from the wild especially if they're if they're easy to you know to well not super easy but if they're easy to breed in captivity and then to take that one step further and say oh yeah i bred these in my back you know i bred these in my back room and then you know that they're just wild caught it's 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 a hard sell for me you know so um I mean, what is there like a rampant 
trade in in mantellas like going on in in madagascar the way it would be in certain parts of you know say like central and south america well they're mantellas are all on site so they're the trades regulated and the trades really decreased um quite a lot since the late 90s when you've got those two mantellas i mean at its peak in 1997 and 1998, there were, I think, as many as, as 30,000 golden mantellas coming out of the wild um, every year, which is just astounding. That's a critically endangered species now. And um, so the trade's really been reduced. The, I think the CITES quota for golden mantellas more recently has been 250 a year. Um, and it's kind of, you know, it's also kind of a balance because I think I, think I mentioned that you know, Madagascar is one of the most economically poorest countries in the world. And, you know, if there is a way to kind of sustainably harvest um, frogs that are in demand or reptiles in the future are in demand, then you wouldn't want to limit that either. So, it's, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult, there isn't, there isn't a lot of evidence that that's working the way it's set up now, but it's, it's you know, it's kind of, it's kind of tricky. But yeah, so anyways, um, Madagascar is, whatever reason um one of the few countries that still is exporting a, a large amount of um highly threatened wild reptiles and amphibians not just mantellus um and it happens every year and they don't always end up they almost always don't end up in very good conditions and the money that people pay for those animals almost never goes back to the people who live near where they occur and who collected them so it's the way it is now is not really great, but um, there might be ways to improve that. Yeah, that's one of the kind of the reoccurring themes that I keep getting from different people on the show, especially who people who work, you know, in, you know, in situ. Um, it's definitely not the first time I've heard that, and I seriously doubt it's going to be the last. But it really does seem to be that, like, not only are I mean, look, I, I'm, you know, I'm going to throw it out there. I'm not against wild caught. If it's done responsibly, um, you obviously, you know, if you're going to have a captive bred population, you have to have some new blood come in from time to time to, to just to maintain, you know, the, the genetic diversity. And obviously that's important. But, you know, like you said, there's a big difference between, you know, 250 frogs being exported legally as opposed to 30, I mean, 30,000, that's a lot of frogs. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a crazy number, but you know, again, there's that human element. It's that you have a lot of people who live in, you know, an impoverished area and, you know, they have to eat, they have to make a living and, you know, they get exploited just as much as the natural resources do, you know, do, which is, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a sad reality. And unfortunately it seems to be something that I, 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 I'm hearing about that on almost every episode now, you know, is not just, not just the amphibian element, but also the human element. That's good. Yeah, that that I think that awareness in a, in the you know among hobbyists and private breeders that that's something that's changing a little more. So I guess that's the first step. Yeah, I like to think so. I mean, you know, everything has a ripple effect to it. And um, when I, I mean, I think you and I are kind of similar in age, but like you know, when I was young, the seeds of conservation were just starting to be sown and conversation. Uh, conservation became, you know, it became, you know, a, a topic that was in the public eye. You know, you had a lot of awareness. You had a lot of, um, you know, like nature documentaries at, well, at, the, at the time. Anyway, they've gone to, they've gone to hell now, but um, it, they always had a conservation focus on it. You know, you highlighted endangered species. Nature was on PBS, National Geographic before it became all spectacle. But those seeds were sown at that time. And then it just seems like with every successive generation, the attitudes towards conservation have improved and being able to source species without wiping them out, you know, seeing the long-term goal, understanding that, you know, you're, you're dealing with people as well as animals. You're, you're, you're dealing with governments, you know, and it's not, you, you can't just fire a magic bullet at this and make everything go, go okay. But, you know, I, I think that, like I always say, there has to be a partnership between people in the hobby, people in academia, you know, and people who are involved in science because those three forces have to work together. And if, you know, otherwise we're not going to get to a point where we're going to have these species because you're going to have people that are going to be either 
you know, overexploiting them because there's no regulations. You're going to have people that are overexploiting them because there's too many regulations. So you have to get everybody on board, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Now, um, I mean, what, like, what's your attitude towards like conservation? I mean, just, just in general, I mean, do you think that like, we're getting to that point now where that line between like hobbyist and, you know, scientists, you think that that's kind of starting to blur? Well, I mean, there's, there's some positive things happening. Um, I guess, you know, the first thing I think of when I think of, you know, amphibian hobbyists and conservation, I think of, you know, some of the um, breeding operations like Wakiri and Tesoros um, in Ecuador and Colombia and um, that are kind of, you know, producing frogs for the, um, for the hobby and then using those funds to fund real conservation on the ground. Um, and, I, I mean, that's just amazing. I would have, you know, if you had asked me 20 years ago, I would have never thought that was possible. I mean, it's just it's just such a cool thing. So as long as hobbyists continue to support um, support those um, businesses, I think that's, um, like, the exact way the hobby needs to go. You know, at the, at the same time, I kind of, you know, I, I still, you know, see, you know, I'm on the edge of it enough that I can see, you know, frogs coming from less legal means still entering the U.S. trade, and that's just really disappointing to see kind of the same, the same, um, same problem happening again and again. So it's in some ways the hobby has changed, and in other ways it hasn't. Um, another big change, though, is, you know, it's grown. There's just so many more people who are interested in keeping, um, uh, especially dog frogs, but also just kind of naturalistic terrariums. I mean, that that seems like something that could be harnessed for conservation. If, if more people are interested in um, nature or where um, the plants and animals they keep are coming from, that seems like something that could be used for conservation. But I think the important thing to remember, you know, we have to remember, you know, if we have, uh, just because we have, a, you know, a beautiful species from a, you know, exotic place in a glass box, not conservation you know it's, it's that's for our own our own entertainment and enjoyment and so our the goal really has to be to you know do as little harm as possible and make sure we're getting our our frogs from uh um ethical and um um a source and to make sure that the you know things we're using the you know we're, we're going with happy web instead of free from panels those small decisions are you know good too I guess, and another, you know, another thing that the hobby does that I think, um, you know, I don't want to, um, I don't want to miss is that, you know, there's, there's some fundraising that the hobby's done. Certainly the, you know, Matsinju's captive breeding uh, facility in Madagascar at the start um, got a lot of support from a German herpetological society, um, got support from American Frog Day, um, you know, uh, understory enterprises. Um, contributed to the project at the start. Josh's frogs contributed to the project, and so I mean, there is there is some money coming from the hobby to conservation efforts. It's, I mean, it's 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 not it's not a you know it's not it's not like a solution. It's not like, but it's um it's 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 a it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, that's I, I've had um. I had Julio Rodriguez on the show um, a few episodes back and um, we got to discuss some of those, you know, some of those efforts in terms of like Tesoros and, um, you know, the, the, the goal obviously is to, you know, provide captive bred animals, but at the same time, you know, funnel some of that money back into, into conservation because ultimately that's going to be, you know, that's going to be the future. That's going to be the fodder for the hobby is going to be responsible, you know, and, you know, properly sourced um you know frogs from the wild so um yeah you know it's it's nice to know that that's kind of becoming the norm now you know at um you know i mean i I hate i mean i I hate using the buzzwords like sustainable and whatnot but it it really it really is you know um it's nice to know that you know all these things out there that we really really enjoy and that we really really cherish you know are there's an effort being made to maintain them in a way that they will last, you know, hopefully as long as they are. But I mean, the other thing that, you know, just to kind of piggyback on what you said before about, 
you know, keeping, you know, keeping things in glass boxes. I mean, it, it is true. I mean, even as like, as you know, my collection, my collection kind of hovers around a certain point, And I know that like, once it exceeds like critical mass, I've kind of like, I've overdone it, but I'm not really like looking to get more frogs per se, because, you know, I started thinking about, you know, it's a lot of things that people have, you know, have, have said to me and it's like, you know, I don't have that collector bug in me anymore you know i mean don't guarantee the species that i really think are beautiful but i don't necessarily want them you know what i mean especially species that haven't really come into the hobby yet i don't know i don't know if i even if i even want to get involved with them you know i almost feel like there's certain things you just kind of just kind of just let it be i don't know i mean that's me i'm sure people have different opinions and whatnot but i don't know i mean think of the diversity of species that are available to keep these days i mean it's i mean i would just you know, you know, nobody even knew like Ron Smyah Benedict even existed like 15 years ago. Like it wasn't the species, you know. And now it's like, you know, I mean, there's just the, the the variety of frogs that are captive bred and that you can keep that already exist. I mean, it's just it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it just it gets into that whole ethical dilemma, though. You know, it's like, I mean. It, I don't know. You know, everyone's going to, everyone's going to have their own opinion. I mean, me just, you know, for what it's worth to everyone out there, I just, I don't know. My, my attitude's kind of changed as of late. You know, it's, it's honestly, it's changed even as the podcast has kind of gone on because I, I feel like if someone, if someone showed me a picture of a frog that was from, you know, uh, and unknown to the hobby, let's just say new to science, I don't even know if I would say anything about it to anyone else. I would just kind of look at the picture, admire it for what it is. Hope to hear about it. Hope to learn as much about it. But I don't know. I don't know if I'd want it in in, in my private collection. I don't know if like I don't know. You know, just uh, it's just kind of the way my you know my senses of uh, you know responsibility of going. I don't know. I just I wouldn't feel right doing it. But not because it's so much work to maintain your collection. You're not at that point where it's like six hours a day. To, <laughs> it's it's more like because you're already satisfied with what you have. Is that I, right? Yeah, I, f- I mean, I my collection is, and I've, I've, I've touched on this in a couple episodes, but, you know, I, I generally keep around, uh, generally around 30 is, is what I can handle comfortably. And, you know, I, I spend a fair amount of time in my frog room, but it's not so much because I have to, it's because I want to. I mean, you know, I spend time making cultures and whatnot, but, you know, some of the, the people in the business that I've spoken to, you know, like uh, Alex Menke and... Um, uh, Travis of TCS, like, you know, they, they spend, a, it's their business, you know, that's how they make their living. And they're spending a lot of time in there, you know, 10, 12, 14 hours a day. I mean, me, I spend maybe about an hour a day or so, hour and a half if I'm, you know, really, you know, trimming plants and stuff like that. But, you know, it, it shouldn't come to the point where it's, it's, it's all work. Cause then it's like, now I'm not enjoying the hobby. I'm just kind of feeding, almost like feeding an addiction, so to speak, you know, once your collection grows to the point where you can't handle it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can understand that. So, I mean, you know, wh- I mean, wh- where do you think that, like, the hobby's going to go in the future? I mean, do you think that, like, regulations are going to become more strict and we're going to kind of lose the amount of species that people can keep? Or, like, like what's like, what's what's your take on it? Where do you think it's going to go? Um, well, kind of, you know, based on what I've seen, I mean, certainly... I think there are, you know, there's there's going to be changes in in what frogs are kind of the um, what frog what kind of frogs people want to keep, and that might drive also what's um, or be based on what's what's available as well. I mean, there's certainly more species available now than there were 20 years ago. Like, you know, I, mean, I don't know, probably 10 times the number of different species that were. You know, but but it's, other things have changed, or you know, maybe the numbers. You know, I mean, if I'm just trying to think. You know, if you go to a pet store these days, you'll see. I mean, you won't see firebelly newts. You won't see probably wild caught mantellas. Maybe, probably not. You won't see. So, so there are there are some things that have changed. Where some like um, amphibians that are either unsustainable to collect in the wild or that pose a risk for other reasons like introducing diseases are no longer available and i think i think that's actually a good thing 
Um, but then you also have kind of the rise of these um, businesses that are based in the countries that amphibians that are in demand of are um, coming from, and they're actually um, breeding them, and and in a couple cases linking it to conservation. So it would be wonderful to see those kind of projects happen in other places. You know, South, Southeast Asia actually exports a lot of frogs, a lot of wild-caught frogs. You know, if you think of the, you know, like I'm trying to think like golden, trips of polypodates, golden tree frogs, um, Kalula, the, the painted frogs, or chunky frogs. And, um, those are still exported from the wild in pretty astounding numbers. So it would, it would be interesting to see if, you know, if, if the trade got restricted more, if maybe that actually allowed breeding operations that were not taking frogs from the wild to open up, maybe, you know. So, I, yeah, I don't know where the, I don't know where the hobby's going, but um, I think, I think, I mean, I mean I'm hopeful that it's going to go in the right direction. Yeah, it's interesting with all the, you know, the species that are now available, you know, to, you know, to the hobby. And a lot of them are species that when I was younger, I had no idea that these things existed outside of one, one illustration that I had in a book. I mean, I had, um, I had this animal encyclopedia for life. Me, I can't remember. I actually, I still have it. I, I had it as a kid and it ended up getting destroyed and I ended up buying it a second time from a rare bookstore. But they had these really amazing illustrations. I remember seeing illustrations of um, Sicilians and glass frogs, and um, there was one. There was one illustration of a um, uh, Pacific giant salamander. I remember seeing these things. I'm like, I'm like, there's just no way I'm ever going to see these things in real life. Never. And you know, with the exception of you know salamanders and whatnot. I mean, you know, glass frogs are are you know are, are in the trade now and they're in the hobby. And it's just it's amazing to think that these things are available for you to actually keep and that a lot of them are actually relatively simple to keep yeah yeah no it's it's really incredible yeah i mean i don't know you know it's like i'm on the fence you know i i i I always think to myself like you know like well when is you know like when is when is enough enough you know and to be honest you know i i always do kind of think like well you know maybe i do want to keep the species but then i kind of you know like i said before i kind of reel it back and i say well you know I've kind of got enough, you know, that I can that I can handle. I mean, your uh, your, your tricolors. I have a trio of them. Do they drive you nuts with the calling? <laughs> it's nonstop, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I. I mean, I like I like it. I, I really enjoy it. But yeah, they are very vocal frogs. <laughs> yeah, they're actually they're 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 probably my favorites. I, I mean, they're not. I um. I mean, they're not particularly impressive to look at. I mean, they have nice, you know, the, the, the red coloration is nice, but I don't know, just the personality. I mean, they come, you know, they come right up to the glass when I go to feed them and I've actually, like, they'll actually fly out of the glass onto me when I'm feeding them, which I cannot stand because they're so small. They end up on the floor or something like that and then it's like this whole big process to like, you know, wrangle them back in, but they're just like, they're like little monsters. They just, they can't get enough. Interesting. No fear. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly enough, though, like mine, mine breed like crazy, and I changed my my method for rearing them. I uh, I ended up, you know, I, I rear them communally in a twenty long, and I've been keeping them about maybe seventy seven degrees, and I've had um, a lot greater success with getting them to you know into metamorphose into froglets and having them actually survive. But it's funny, you know, as as like crazy they are with breeding. I went in their vivarium and I trimmed a lot of the plants out. I had some things that died. And I ended up kind of knocking down some of their film canisters. They went off breed for like a month, two months. And I was like so surprised. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, all right, even these guys are apparently sensitive to having their environment rearranged. But they just, they just came back again. They just, they just dropped a couple of tadpoles into, um, into the deli cup I kept in there maybe like last week, but I don't know. They, they, they probably could have used a break anyway. Cause they were just laying clutches like constantly. It's funny how that happens. Sometimes you change one little thing and then it's like everything stops or everything starts, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, I also have, um, I have a pair of, uh, Philobates bicolor that I got. Uh, they're, Probably my oldest dark frogs, actually. No, well, second oldest. I have a, um, I have an Oyapok. That's that's my oldest frog. But I had them. 
the mail will call from time to time and you know they'll kind of go back and forth with my um, with my Terabellus. And you know one will get one will start calling and then they'll kind of go back and forth cuz the calls are similar. They laid they they gave me um two two clutches or two spawn I should say. Now I got to get in the habit of saying spawn instead of clutches, but they gave me two spawn and they were both duds. And I was like, okay, well maybe this is the start of something good. Maybe I can get them to continue. And then no, they just they just stop. So in the maybe like the four years I've had them, I've only gotten two two duds. And I can't recreate whatever whatever the magic was, I can't recreate it. So So that's that's a new project for you then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but again, you know, it's not. It shouldn't really even be so much just about keeping them to have them. You know, I mean, now the fact that, and I don't even see them in the hobby. I mean, I I do see them in the hobby, but the 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 locale or the morph I have is uh, is, is Greenleg, and I got them from Josh's a long time ago, and I've never seen them. Actually, I take that back. I did see them for sale once, and I considered getting like another two to raise up just so I'd have a small group to work with. And I didn't pull the trigger fast enough, and they were gone. So when will I see them again? I don't know, but um, you know that's another thing. Rather than just keeping them to keep them, I thought it might be interesting to try and you know get them to reproduce, maybe get some more stock out there. Don't know, but that's you're right. That's definitely definitely a project for me to take on. Funny how things kind of come and go like that. You know, there seem to be these like these fads, these species that are or or these, these years when things. That everybody seems to be breeding them and they're everywhere. And then another few years go by, and you remember that frog, and it's hard to find it again. Yeah, yeah. It's like my Patricias. I mean, I have um, I have three females, and I had a male a while back, and um, the female that I had him paired with, um, I think that she was just a little bit too hard on him, and. Um, you know, it's, it's probably my fault. I should have separated them, but I didn't, I didn't see anything. You know, I know that there's a lot of kind of subtle, you know, in it besides, you know, fo- you know, beating each other up. There, there's a lot of subtleties going on that you don't always pick up, but, um, the male, the male ended up passing after about a year with her. And, um, I ended up getting another, what I, I what I was told were two sexed males. And when I got them, they were in a deli cup and they were kind of compressed, you know, like the male tinks, they, they're kind of like, uh, like flat. And they've got the large toe pads. Well, you know, it was in a deli cup. I'm like, okay, cool. You know, it looks it looks male. And I get it home. I get it out of the deli cup, and I see that arched back and those little toe pads. I'm like, crap. So, yeah. So now I have three female Patricias, and you know, find even finding Patricias out there, they're not as common as they as they used to be. They used to be like you know, um, like the like the generic like go to dark frog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I wonder why. That- I don't know. I think it's just you know the way things go. You know, it's like um, it's like granite granite countertops in construction. You know, I mean everybody's kitchen has a granite countertop. Good luck trying to find one that's made of formica. You know, and it's just it's just the trends, I guess, the way things go. You know, can't find certain things. Well, um, you know, before we wrap up, I mean, is there anything that you wanted to like t- to kind of add in, or anything that we might have you know missed out on? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, this has been a really nice having, I mean, honestly, just having a right, nice conversation, you know, during the pandemic and stuff. I don't get to talk to too many frog people in person anymore, so it's kind of nice to talk frogs for, for once. Yeah, I mean, so, again, it's, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, you know, for me, it's a positive thing. You know, I mean, I, you know, uh, not, I don't like to get too personal about, but, you know, I went through some hard times, um, you know, in the past couple of years and just kind of finding that center and getting back to a place that, I found to be comfortable was, was a nice thing. And, you know, it's, again, the other reason I started this podcast was really to, um, create a forum where people can do just that, you know, just talk frogs. I mean, you know, how, how bad could that be? (laughs) Cool. So, and I mean, just now, just before we wrap up, I just want, there was one thing I actually wanted to ask you. Now you're working towards your, your, your PhD. What, What are you like, what are you working on for your, for your doctorate? Like, where do you want to go after that? Um, well, I, I actually just started this summer, and um, I've kind of gone back around and working on mantellas again, actually. So I was spending probably the next four or five years working on uh, um, to kind of fill the research 
needs in this conservation plan that's been put in place or being put in place for um, for Mantella Kalani. So that's 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 all I'm looking forward to spending the next uh, few years. Um, I'm not sure exactly long term what I want to do, but I know that this project means a lot to me, and um, it just seems like really a wonderful opportunity to be able to to help a species I care about. So um, that's where I am now. Very cool. Very cool. All right, everyone. I want to thank Devin for being my guest. And, um, you know, it's nice to get onto, you know, a topic. I know we usually kind of do the dendrobateds, but, you know, to get into Mantel's was definitely interesting. And, um, Devin, I want to thank you for being a great guest and for sharing all your insight with me. Hey, thanks a lot. Cool, cool. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Again, appreciate, you know, all the love from everybody out there. And uh, catch up with you guys again soon.